Hey, everybody, this is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. Thanks so much for downloading the podcast. Would you do me a favor when you're done listening? Would you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast? We need your reviews to take us to the top. Thanks. Now let's get to it. This week, the focus is on the growing population of young Black and Latino men that are drawn to President Donald Trump. I don't care about anything else, the racism, I'm all about my money. But below the surface, as more women move up, some men feel left out. In terms of black men feeling disenfranchised in the household, within his community. The gender line in politics among people of color. We dig in. Then, QAnon, conspiracy theories, and hoaxes. Also, many fall victims. It's not always clear that the message you're getting is from a conspiracy theory. Professional fact checker gives tips on how to better consume media. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is men of color and Donald Trump. A recent poll of black voters in Pennsylvania shows that 28% of black men under 50 are either Trump supporters or undecided, and Hispanic men are a small but important part of the president's base. But why do men and women of color differ on their support of Trump? With me to discuss this Flashpoint is Rafael Collazo. He's Director of Political Affairs for Unidos U.S. Action Fund. We also have Randy Robinson, founder of Right for Philadelphia. Gentlemen, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you, Thank so you much. for having us. Polls show that American-born Hispanic men, particularly those under age 45, are highly skeptical of former Vice President Joe Biden, and roughly 35% of this group support Trump. For Black voters, the support for Trump has gone up from 10% to 21% among young Black voters age 18 to 44. I want to start with you, Randy. Provide some context. This interest in the Trump campaign is actually, I mean, bigger than the Republican organization as, as a Black man. I think there's been some things that's been trended in our community that the our political structure just have been ignoring um, in terms of black men feeling disenfranchised. You know, three dynamics, what within a, in the household, within his community, and within and actually his interaction with his family, you juxtapose that with the, the politics of the Democratic Party, which largely has eradicated a platform for manhood, malehood. And then you have an entity called Donald Trump, who exudes all these dynamics. I call Donald Trump the greatest political follow symbol and double fingers up to the system that there is. There's a, a bit of machismo and, um, bravado about him that different disenfranchised um, young African-American men who've seen the failures in both systems, Democratic and Republican, but they attract to his level of just the dynamic of him as a man in Machismo. And they were saying the fact that what a way to make a statement to say we reject establishment politics. We reject a dynamic that we don't exist. We're existing in the peripheries in our own homes and community. And I'm going to support the guy whom I say, I think speaks loudly and like I would if I was in that position, regardless of agreement or disagreement with his policies. Raphael, what are you seeing among Hispanic voters and specifically men? Why are they so attracted to, to Donald Trump? Well, it's all relative. So even this cohort still does, uh, you know, he says relatively small support, but definitely notable in comparison to the rest of the Latino population. But what we're seeing with younger Latino men is a sense of uh, a sense of insecurity that in some ways Trump alleviates for them. If you look at this portion of our population, it's not as uh, it's not gaining 
in educational attainment or in career advancement, generally speaking, as their Latina sisters. And so this, this sense of feeling falling behind, not having its rightful place at the table, even in their own family, where maybe they're not achieving uh, or providing in the same way that they would be expected or feeling uh, uh, having a hard time keeping up with their with their Latina partners. Trump is tapping into that insecurity. There's also other entryways where Latino men receive favorable messaging around Trump. Latinos in law enforcement, for example, they're in institutions and cultures that very much in many respects are supportive of Trump and his the lip service he, he plays to those institutions. You know, there's also a segment of our population that is very religiously conservative. So the growing Latino evangelical community, so you may have a, a young Latino who uh, evangelical that in the same way that other evangelicals, particularly white evangelicals, are attracted to some of the more conservative social messaging could also be attracted to that message from a religious perspective. You you talk, you tapped into this feeling of, of being ignored and that Trump has been able to tap into. What are the issues though? Are there issues that are very attractive so that he does tap into this feeling, but then he's also talking some stuff that sounds really good. Initially in 2016, you saw the fringe, the fringe disenfranchised African-American male on um, buying it. But now not actually even those who are, who are not uh, disenfranchised. Um, Donald Trump, in, in terms of platforms, you know, since we reduced Black men to either being incarcerated, you know, incarceration or some dynamic for going to college, Donald Trump spills out a couple of policies that he actually put into place that benefited those in terms of, I think he hammered home last night, talk about his support for the HBCUs and not making it an annual appropriation and made it a 10 year appropriation. And then he, he did get um, the second uh, second chance at a uh, pass where um, it, it definitely impacted his criminal justice system. So those are the things, the grab handles that, that they, they can attach to if in fact that there was going to be some level or conversation of a policy. Um, it's largely, again, the, the Trump appeal is not necessarily because of Donald Trump. It's, an, it's a byproduct of the affect of, of men, and, and, and particularly Black men and men of color, being ostracized out of the political spectrum and conversation, particularly on the left. It's about immigrants, the LGBTQ community, women and children, and that's kind of the platform of the Black Lives Matter. So you're seeing more and more men, young men, and men of color, just seeing not just they're not seeing themselves in, in, in a space that speaks directly to them. And I think so, somewhat of a degree that it's only some level of notice that is in his electoral cycle and in, in, in the 11th hour. I'm saying that this dynamic has been happening and brewing over, over a number of years, and particularly the last four years, when you saw that there, there was a number of African-Americans that had an appeal to a Trump message, which seemed quite outrageous politically, but they attracted to it. Guess what? It's grown because no one has addressed those issues that these black men are talking about. And, the, and, these, and these groups are talking about them a lot and largely online and, and, and the fact that we even just ignore them. So this is their space and time and people are, make, are sending a message that they are tired of establishment politics and they're not liking the way that the yeah. Democratic Party is, is rolling. This idea that men, men of color specifically, have been ignored by the Democratic Party Rafael, do you agree with that? Or are there issues that are specifically touted by President Donald Trump and the, and the current Republican Party that attract these men? If you talk to him about the issues, there is a strand of conversation around, I don't care about anything else, the racism, the, the talk, I'm all about my money. So if he's the money guy, you know, again, a lot <laughs> of the same branding that attracts yes. other people and other men from other communities. Mm -hmm. 
He's about the money. I'm all about the money. I want to get my, you know, the 50 cent model. I'm getting mine. And that's all that matters. But if you go a layer below that, what you're seeing is that some of this is also goes back to these cultural issues. When you think about, when I think about people like Jorge Masvidal, who is one of the biggest, he's an MMA superstar amongst the millennial and the Generation Z Latino men. One of the biggest celebrities we have right now. Part of Dana White, Dana White supports MMA. He's a Trump supporter. And so, and again, it's about this macho. It goes beyond issues because there really isn't much there other than maybe someone in the military that engages in foreign policy discussions. It really is about this ethos and this culture. And what I see, I can't speak on the African-American community, but there definitely is a, a feeling by some Latino men that I don't want to be associated with being the other and being otherized and immigrants and people that are being blatantly discriminated by this administration. So I'm going to mm-hmm. associate myself with being over this, this feeling of overly being patriotic and overly showing that I'm, I'm someone to be accepted. So I'm going to associate myself with this, with this culture and this cult around the Trump, the Trump ethos. So a lot of it is cultural, a lot of it's psychological and it's feeling by some mm-hmm. Latino men that they're trying to figure out a way to try to fit in in this conversation. Talk about the culture. Do you think this culture trend, this women's equality, women, do you think that oh. there's some discomfort there for the men and they, and that's why they feel so left out? Yeah. Yeah. There's some level of rejection. So let's be very clear. Um, Donald Trump didn't suddenly just start appealing to black men. Um, before he became um, a politician, he had lots of appeal with black men in terms of being a casino owner, the boxing, the football. He was the, the brand guy with the big red tie and the money maker in the deal. So he, he hung around with athletes and rappers and whom had an appeal for his uh, his brand. So that's one aspect of it. But certainly the, the dynamic in terms of the culture where we're seeing a breakdown of what we had a traditional patriarchal society that that doesn't exist anymore. And that's being broken down um, across the board. So where you know we still find it solid somewhat in the religious circles, but you look in our business circles, you look at um, community and political circles, all these now are becoming led by women and women and women. And so there's some level of discomfort that men are being excluded, left left out, left behind. And then again, we're only talking about talk about them in, in largely in two facets, either entangled with the law or killed by the law. So there's a whole space of black men who are alive who just haven't been shot and killed by the police or or just gone to jail or locked up and, and looking for a space or a platform that represents them and they don't see it. And they see that, you know, you just, your representation in college, 70% of the graduates are women. So the jobs are going to women. They see how your women slipping away. And that's a, a concern for their standing in America. And again, R- R- Donald Trump is just symbolic of the dynamics that they wish that they had. And they see that's grasping and, and, and going away from them. It's an appeal to Trumpism. It's not an appeal to the Republican Party whatsoever. None of this goes down ballot or or transcends that they're they're registered Republican. There's something and, and they're enamored by the dynamic, this creation of, of Donald Trump, his personality, and, and again, not necessarily his brand of politics, but his in terms of policy, but they like the way that he 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 represents himself as man this man's man. So yeah, he represents man's man. manhood in a way. Yeah, he's a cigar shooting range type of guy. So that's the type of guy who likes that. I told him any any man that owns a gun illegally or um or has been in trouble with a gun, find some appeal to Donald Trump because he speaks to both of those audiences. And so Raphael, I mean, you know, people said that, you know, the, the recent poll said that a lot of young Latino men are very skeptical of former Vice President Biden, on the other hand. 
Why do you think that is? That speaks to some of the dynamic we're seeing in the African-American community related to, well, you know, we went through this, the Obama era and what really changed in my life. So there's this feeling of, uh, and particularly for people that maybe don't follow politics closely and aren't in tune with a lot of the policies day to day, aren't as familiar with even the Affordable Care Act and some of the other policy initiatives during the Obama administration, but just this general sense of, well, I was working then, working now, you know, things don't don't seem to change under any of these administrations. So what's the difference? So there is a a, a skepticism, uh, particularly for men and younger men that maybe just don't follow politics as closely. And, you know, look, the messaging and some would argue the misinformation makes a difference. President Trump for over a year has been implementing uh, social media messaging, targeting these populations we're talking about now with very subtle, targeted information to build up skepticism, to build up these questions and to point out sometimes legitimate policy issues like the, the, the fact that the Obama administration deported more uh, immigrants than in past administrations to build up the skepticism amongst uh, this part of the population. That's a great transition because this chunk, and about a third of both Black men and Latino men either support Trump or other. So this is a third that do not support Biden, at least a third. So you think about that and say to yourself, okay, well, what is it? And so Trump um, has stood with white supremacists, Randy. He has a very <laughs> strong anti-immigration policy with se- uh, separating families. Does this not deter th- those brothers over there, Randy? With- they put it on the wash and say, it's all politics. They're all corrupt. They all do stuff. And, and I haven't seen wins from either one. So again, they look at their lives and say, well, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and still face the challenges I have, whether he's made these comments or not. And again, um, so they kind of just be obtuse to, to that dynamic. Trump is also the first president I've ever seen who's never left campaign mode. He never went to governor mode. He stayed in campaign mode. So he's been campaigning for re-election since for four years. So he's been messaging and targeting and putting out these messages to this, di- to this demographic for a long time. So if he had a four-year buildup of messaging, they can overlook the little bumps in the roads and, and sometimes when he's messaging other, other communities. The point is the matter is that he definitely appeals to him because he speaks directly to him. And, and again, I think this is a, a, an issue that needs to be further discussed um, beyond the electoral cycle in the 11th yeah. hour because yeah, we have a lot of young men and, you know, across the board whom are just not as in tune to the educated. And there has to be a constant education as to how to determine a, 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 a political candidate, a president, and that dynamic. So I, I think that there's some work, some legwork that has to be done so we can get our electorate up to speed so they're not fooled by misinformation, they're not going for glitz and glamour. And I gotta say, this has been a major shift culturally. We've seen a major shift culturally uh, in America. Uh, We see women's equality being, um, saying that, you know, this is is the new way. Me too was a a big slap, right? And Mm -hmm. then then Black Lives Matter on top of that. Can we talk about this issue? Have, have people kind of left men out of the conversation? And this is the response, Raphael. This is the response to a lot of those changes culturally uh, that have been happening uh, uh, you know, across the country. I think you've hit on a key point because part of this goes back to that conversation we were having earlier around in the, in, in the case that I'm, I'm studying, the insecurity of this generation of Latino men. 
not feeling like not only they have a place in society of of of, of prestige or stand of of standing, but not even have spaces to have these conversations. Mm-hmm. So if you're a Latino man, blue collar guy making forty thousand dollars a year, you got a good wife, she's got a master's degree, she's making double you making. <laughs> yeah. Where's the space to have the conversation to say, my wife doesn't put me down. I'm in a healthy relationship, but I do feel an insecurity, not feeling like I'm pulling, even not only just being the man and the the patriarch, but just feeling like I'm an equal partner in this relationship. And so where where does a Latino man have a place to have that conversation? So you turn to this this political conversation Mm -hmm. where you have a symbol of machismo, a symbol of um, kind of being able to speak to uh, a lot of feelings that men across the board have around how this society is evolving. And, you know, this dynamic around Black women and Latina women surpassing their men from an education mm-hmm. perspective is also happening in the white community. And yeah. so, you know, this is a vessel for men that do deserve, and we do have to find mechanisms so they can have these conversations and find outlets so that they can understand they are bringing a lot to the table and how can we support them and fostering more of a, of, a, of a healthy identity. The cultural part is that in the other community, in the African-American community, is that in the, in the white community, for the advancement of the white woman is not at the detriment of the white man. But in a Black community, like the advancement of Black women in terms of platform education, workforce dynamic, always seems to be at, 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 at the detriment of the Black man. There's, there's always some demand of sacrifice that for you to get ahead, then your Black man can't be a part of it. And that started when you change the dynamic of, of social services and agenda, when you had a, a black woman or a poor family who needed assistance, that you can have the existence of the black man in the house where it happened. And that has perpetuated for several decades that black men are seeing that for the advancement of his black woman is at his detriment. And, and that's a cultural dynamic that, that's really, really need to be discussed. And that, that's a critical dynamic. Culture. And if I can ju- and if I could jump in there, Latino community with some of those social dynamics you're talking about in history, Randy also experiences some of that. But then also the cultural piece related to some of our folks have only been here one generation and they're coming from Latin American countries where the dynamic is much different, much more misogyny, frankly, is is much more acceptable. And so now they're stepping into a society where where it's, you know, me too. And, you know, just so they're, they're these, in this case, some of these immigrant Latino men are being asked to evolve three generations in one lifetime. And so some yes. are having a hard time with those adjustments. This is yeah. a big, you you gentlemen just made me realize this is a series of conversations. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I have said repeatedly that, you know, women have changed a lot, but we haven't checked in with our men to see how these changes are impacting them and how it's impacting their role in society. Um, you know, cause, cause you can't, it can't be one gender it's not a one gender, and I and, and my final question because there is a there there is this gender line because Donald Trump won white men by twenty points, twenty points, and and it's very likely he'll win white men as a collective by twenty points over Joe Biden, um, and he's he's got a solid hole and has been growing his hole on uh, black and Latino men or Hispanic men, and so we talk about this. I mean the gender line, this gap. 
How do we bring, how do we close this division, gentlemen, as we wrap up? Summarize it in 30 seconds, it would be really helpful. <laughs> well, I, I would say from a Latino perspective, we have to create more spaces for Latino men to, to be able to have these conversations. But ultimately, it's not the responsibility of Black Latina women for our men to get it together. There has to be a partnership, there has to be an understanding, but at the same time, ultimately, the men in our community need to support each other and help work out these feelings of insecurity that, you know, we know a lot of social and cultural reasons are there, but ultimately uh, we're gonna need to resolve because this cannot be an antagonistic relationship with the women in our community. That's not gonna be helpful. Final word, Randy. Yeah, I kind of echo that. I think the, the, the first and foundational step has to be with, with men come along and coalescing with one another in, in terms of us really developing a bond, a brotherhood and, um, and, and self-assurance so we can build each other up. You know, you look at most of our men are, are coming from um, households of multi-generational of single parenting and, and led by women. So there is some, a sense of loss in terms of defining ourselves and, and our standing. So we're going to have to go, go back and, and actually just start in terms of being a mentor um, to our brothers over that we can start um, having proper um, demonstration of, of our emotions um, and then we can have make better choices um, either with the, in our mates, in our workplace, and and then and certainly at the end making the best political decisions for us as a whole, um, so that we, yeah. we can be more fulfilled and secure. So um, these conversations of men need to happen and and happen um, repeatedly and, and consistently. And then our political parties don't have to worry about the fallouts when. Yes, well, I want to say thank you so much, Randy Robinson and Rafael Callazo. Thank you for being on Flashpoint. Thank you so much. Thank you. Next up, conspiracy theories, hoaxes, and lies. Oh, my. It's not always clear that the message you're getting is from a conspiracy theory. A fact checker breaks down QAnon and gives tips on becoming better consumers of media. We'll be right back. Hey, Flashpoint family, if you like what you hear, why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras. One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our Pat's Newsmaker of the Week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early. All of this and more. Please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Now back to the show. This is Flashpoint and I'm Cherry Gregg. Our newsmaker this week is the myths and disinformation that has increasingly seeped into news feeds online over the past several years from QAnon to conspiracy theories to outright lies and hoaxes. Where does it all come from and how do you become a more conscientious consumer of media? With me to discuss this Flashpoint is Sarah Hale Spencer, a staff writer at factcheck.org, a project with the Penn Annenberg Policy Center. Welcome to Flashpoint, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. For people who've never heard of factcheck.org, explain what the project is. So factcheck.org is um, basically dedicated to making sure that the correct information related to politics and policy is available for you know, the American voter. We fact check statements from politicians and public officials. And also in more recent years, um, we've added to that fact-checking um, misinformation, viral misinformation that circulates online. And so perfect transition. What is 
misinformation and disinformation? Because we've been hearing these words floating around. What does that mean? Disinformation is falsehoods that are intentionally spread, um, sometimes by, you know, another state's government or, you know, some sort of organization or individual who has an interest in misleading people. So if it's intentionally created and intentionally put out, it's called disinformation. Misinformation is when that disinformation sort of unintentionally spreads. That's something that happens a lot on social media. People who are presented with disinformation don't recognize that it's false and unintentionally keep spreading it. And so what's the impact of this gone unleft unchecked? We focus on correcting misinformation or disinformation that um, would have an impact on people's understanding of either policy or politics. Right now in an election season, you know, misinformation that's spreading about anything related to election fraud or, you know, problems with ballots, things like that. You know, if, if people are getting the wrong information about how to vote, where to vote can really have a, an impact on the outcome of an election. You know, if people are told to go to the wrong polling place or, you know, if, you know, told that their mail ballots um, you know, shouldn't be sent through the U.S. Postal Service. Yeah, it would impact whether or not you show up to the polls, where you put your information, it could have a major impact. Because we saw this issue in 2016. We, we found out later that another country, right? had been trying to tamper with the U.S. elections. And it was very shocking. Do you think folks have sort of shifted their their uh, way of looking at this issue for this election? I don't honestly know. Um, so I, in, in writing about misinformation online, I spend a lot of time on, you know, sort of the major social media platforms, um, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Facebook in particular, also YouTube. It's hard to tell whether or not people have sort of shifted their thinking about how they consume information. I would be inclined to say that they haven't, although I'd be hesitant to say that for sure. Um, and I think that there, there are probably studies out there who, who have looked a little bit at this, but also it hasn't been that long. You know, 2016 really wasn't that long ago. The way that misinformation spread on the internet and through social media. It just happens so much more quickly now than it had, you know, even just 10 years ago. So the way that this misinformation is spreading happens so quickly. And I, and I don't know that that society really has, has been able to kind of catch up with how to safeguard itself against misinformation. So let's talk about social media platforms, because you, you mentioned that. Um, have they shifted? Because, I mean, this was going unchecked for a long time. And now we see that there is a range of responses by social media platforms to mis and disinformation. Facebook in particular, we actually partner um, starting after, shortly after the 2016 election, um, Facebook began partnering with some fact-checking organizations, ourselves included. And so they actually have a program for, you know, third-party fact-checkers like ourselves to find misinformation that's you know, spreading widely on the site and then write a story debunking it. And our story, they attach to the false information that is spreading on their platform. Um, other social media companies, I, I'm less familiar with how they do things, but certainly it's been widely reported about, you know, how Twitter has sort of begun attaching either further reporting or sort of warning messages to widespread mis or disinformation on their platform. Yeah. And YouTube, I think, hasn't done very much of anything at this point. And so let's shift a little bit and talk about some of the different conspiracies 
conspiracies that we've heard about. I know you fact check quite a few. And one of them that I want to talk about is QAnon. Could you explain what that is? Because most people are hearing this. They have no idea what it is or whether they've fallen victim to it. I'm glad you asked the question that way, um, because it gets at one of the, the major problems with QAnon is a lot of people are sort of victims of the conspiracy theory without knowing it because it sort of seeps into other areas. So just to back up a little bit, QAnon is this really wide ranging conspiracy theory um, that first developed in October, 2017, but it sort of has reached back to grab from earlier conspiracy theories. Q um, is this supposedly person in the U.S. government with high-level security clearance that, you know, makes these predictions on internet chat boards. Most of his predictions turn out to be wrong. I mean, among his first, it was, you know, that Hillary Clinton was within the next few weeks going to be arrested, you know, that there were going to be 25,000, you know, major indictments that were going to come down. And, and sort of the spine of the conspiracy theory is that President Donald Trump is a crusader of sorts who is fighting against this well-established and elite circle of pedophiles who are running the, the government. When you hear that, most people think that's crazy. It's hard to believe something like that. But the problem with QAnon is it, it has also sort of part of the theory is that, you know, the bad guys are these um, all powerful pedophiles, particularly over the last year, it's really gotten entrenched in online circles, hashtags that are fighting actual, um, you know, sex trafficking. It's, it's sort of taken over the save the children hashtag on social media. So it's worked its way into, um, you know, sort of a more legitimate sounding or, you know, overtaken and actually legitimate movement. Um, so often people on Instagram, people on Facebook are, you know, sharing these QAnon posts without knowing that they're QAnon. You know, it's hashtag save the children. And, you know, it's a message about stopping, you know, human trafficking rings, which it sounds terrible. Certainly, I, you know, that nobody would argue that, you know, being against human trafficking is, is a good thing. You know, that's something that should be fought against. But the, the type of thing they're talking about isn't happening. And it distracts from what the actual issues of human trafficking are and, you know, can have an impact on real organizations that are trying to fight real world harm. Because I have read that, you know, some of these human trafficking organizations are inundated with calls from QAnon conspiracy believers or victims, and they're unable to actually do the real job of stopping real life human traffickers. Yeah. So listeners might remember, um, you know, over the summer, there was there was a pretty well publicized conspiracy theory related to QAnon um, about the Wayfair online furniture store being part of this human trafficking circle. And yeah, organizations and, you know, government hotlines for human trafficking were, you know, overrun with phone calls of, you know, people calling about this completely bogus Wayfair scandal. And so your job is kind of to do stories because you've done a number of stories on various conspiracies that have been retweeted, supported by actual figureheads and our government. And um, how do you decide which ones to, 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 
to, I guess, dig into. And uh, is there a process that you guys use to kind of say, okay, this is one that's catching on. We need to like debunk this immediately. In deciding which conspiracy theories to write about or just general misinformation to write about, um, we stick to sort of the core tenets of our mission. So if it if it's something that is, you know, going to mislead people about policy or politics, um, then it's and it's and it's something that is, you know, spreading widely. Um, then typically it's it's something that we'll write about. If it's a claim that's sort of not getting much traction or you know not spreading that far, then having us write about it would just draw more attention to it. So really it's it's those things that, that we look for. Misinformation or you know whether it's conspiracy theory or otherwise that could mislead on policy or politics. And it's something that is, you know, pretty, pretty widespread. So how have our candidates been doing? Cause you've been, there's been a lot of statements made. Uh, if you were to be more general and not specific, how are they doing when you go into, you have to fact check some of these statements as we head to election, how are they doing? It's a busy time for conspiracy theories, I'll say in this election. Um, you know, anyone who watched the, the town halls saw that QAnon got a pretty significant mention there. And it's it's something that has has definitely come up. Absolutely. I just wrote a story about the, you know, the various conspiracy theories that President Trump has sort of engaged with um, over his time in office and even before that. So having a candidate who has sort of a history and familiarity with familiarity is probably the wrong word, but has, you know, has a history with um, engaging with conspiracy theories. It, it certainly makes it more a part of the election cycle than we've seen, at least in recent history. What makes people susceptible to believing some of this? I think that there are sort of a few ways of understanding why people are, are susceptible. One of the ways, and it's something we touched on a little bit earlier, that is really prevalent now, and particularly with this QAnon, is it's not always clear that the message you're getting is from a conspiracy theory, you know, because it has it has its tentacles all over. And, you know, there are also so another another thing similar to, you know, taking over the Save the Children hashtag, it, it uses this common phrase deep state that what it refers to as this, you know, cabal of child predators who are running the government. And so it, you know, it uses this phrasing that is widespread and not necessarily tied to QAnon, but it, it can seep into your, your Facebook timeline, you know, with these messages of being against pedophilia and being against the deep state. People get sort of inculcated into the conspiracy theory without really knowing that they're spreading QAnon-related messages. What can you do as an individual? You're taking in social media. Is there a way for you to check? You're a professional fact checker, but is there an easy way for lay people to sort of verify information before they hit post or share or send? When you're, you know, scrolling through social media um, and it's really hard to know what's wrong when you're seeing it, you know, it's just presented to you in your feed, you know, your aunt shared something or, you know, your girlfriend from high school, whatever it might be, someone you know and trust, it's hard to, you, there's no reason you would suspect it to be false. And so my tip that is, if you see a piece of information that like really feels right, like it confirms what you think about, you know, politician X, Y, or Z, misinformation and conspiracy theories too, often sort of are more emotional, like they, they appeal to your emotions. And so they'll either like, it'll either feel really right, or it'll make you really angry towards something. And so if you have strong feelings about something related to policy or politics that you see on social media, before you share it, 
check on the facts. And so you can just do a quick internet search, you know, just type in some of the keywords from the meme or story you saw on social media. And often either we'll have written about it or, you know, one of the other fact-checking organizations has written about it, or you'll just sort of get results from news sources that you might trust, you know, sort of legacy newspaper, television stations that have, you know, covered the issue. You can get a sense of whether or not you're, you're being misled before you go ahead and reshare. I will tell you this, Sarah, I have been online correcting people in their comments like this is not real. Stop sharing it. And so people should check out your site because your site, the website factcheck.org is a source. Yeah, I, I would encourage people either, you know, us factcheck.org or, um, you know, PolitiFact or, you know, the Washington Post fact checker. There are a lot of good sites out there, you know, Snopes, a lot of good sites that are writing about this stuff and trying to make it as clear to people as possible, what's true and what's false. And I will say on correcting people, when you see falsehoods online, it can be hard for people to admit, you know, when they're wrong. And it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing when you share something that's false. And so I think that the best way to handle it, you know, if you can, and it can be hard to have this conversation sometimes with people in your life as discreetly as possible, like, hey, you know, I I have a lot of respect for you and I know you're really smart. So I just wanted to let you know and then send a link to the story that sort of debunks the claim that they've shared. Because no no one likes to be wrong. (laughs) You guys actually help the folks who a little bit because you you provide the accurate facts that we can just present to people so that they know so you're help you providing a public service Sarah we're trying to we're trying to yeah Yeah. any final thoughts on this topic just be careful when you know when you're online it's a minefield out there be as wary as you can and try to verify any information Thank you so much to Sarah Hale Spencer over at factcheck.org. I appreciate your time and, and for being on Flashpoint. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Next up, they're providing a safe, family-friendly option for Halloween. Because now they're talking about, you know, the collision of flu and COVID. How you can get involved by chalking it up. We'll be right back. Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you're a caregiver and feel uncertain about where you're working now, call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work and caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. That's PatriotHomeCare.org. Or call 1-877-535-5550. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KYW, we are all about community. And two local leaders are encouraging their community to color the streets and get out for some Halloween fun. Here to talk about their upcoming event, Chalk It Up, are our Patriot Home Care Changemakers, Reverend Chandra Williams of the United Missionary Baptist Church and Pennsylvania State Representative Donna Bullock. First of all, uh, Reverend, what is Chalk It Up and where did you get this idea? At the beginning of COVID, you know, I, I believe that I saw a lot of families getting out and chalking up their driveways and parents just with their children, you know, making the best of being home during COVID. And so seven months later, I'm like, what can we do for Halloween to keep our children safe? 
because now they're talking about, you know, the collision of flu and COVID. So I thought that this would be a great idea as well as getting our neighbors out and having conversation because there's a lot of new neighbors moving into Brewerytown. On October 31st from 3 to 5 p.m., we would like families to come outside to their fronts, their sidewalks, and to chalk it up. So to take some of the chalk that myself and uh, State Representative Bullock will be distributing along with candy to get out in front of your house and just create you know, I'm thinking about hopscotch. I'm thinking about fall things, pumpkins, leaves, uh, just drawing, whatever. You know, if they're two-year-olds, whatever they want to draw, they can draw it. But we want them to get out on the 31st between three and five and create some family environment in front of their homes and chalk it up with sidewalk chalk. I love it. So this whole idea, uh, Rep Bullock, I mean, you have children, Halloween, safety, two things that are colliding, especially in that neck of the woods in Philadelphia. Right. Halloween is one of my family's favorite holidays. You know, my children love to dress up, but I always want to make sure that we're being safe. And so actually every year my office uh, introduced and the state house has passed a resolution recognizing Halloween safety month. And in the past, that was about making sure kids, you know, walked in groups, that they had glow sticks or reflectors so you could see them at night. But this year, Halloween safety takes on a whole new meaning, right? We have to make sure that we're looking and being careful about our public health um, and the COVID and flu concerns while families are trying to enjoy a holiday that many look forward to. And in Brewery Town, we get crowds of young people and families that come through. It's a great time of year where we see all of our families get together and neighbors get together. So we'll miss that because we don't want to really encourage folks to be out there knocking on doors or walking in groups as we try to maintain social distancing and mask wearing and, and personal hygiene. So this month and this year, I'm so excited to partner with Chandra Williams and the United Missionary Baptist Church because what great way to still encourage that fun. My office will be distributing chalk and candy bags and resources for parents the day before on Friday, October 30th from 3 to 5, right in front of my office at 2835 West Girard Avenue. And for families who can't chalk up their sidewalks, we'll provide crayons so that they can do a, a drawing or something on a piece of paper. What I remember from the pandemic when it first started, there was an art challenge on Facebook. The first week was rainbows. The next week was moons and stars. And our community really got around this. And you may recall a story or two about the balloon rainbows in our community, where we had a balloon artist putting together rainbow balloons on people's front steps. And that started because the kids were drawing pictures of rainbows and putting it in their windows. Then pictures of stars and moons the next week, pictures of butterflies the next week. There were different themes and they posted it to Facebook. So I look forward to taking that same energy and event that was happening just organically in our community. And now they can do the same with these chalk art. I'm sure we have some amazing <laughs> artists in our community from our little tiny ones and they can post their Halloween chalk art or some other art that they did um, while enjoying Halloween activities with their family on their stoops and being safe during this particular very unique 
Halloween. Yes, this could be an idea that could go across the city because you guys are doing this in brewery town Mm -hmm. and you touched upon this topic, but there's unique situation in brewery town that something like this could actually bring neighbors together. Yeah, because, you know, with the gentrification, you know, there's transiency and people are moving in and people are moving out. There's a lot of development. And so before COVID, within the hustle and bustle, people were just moving, you know, they were just going to work. But now we have that time to really work remotely and people are kind of getting to know their neighbors even more. And so this will be a great opportunity for the city to, you know, continue to move this from community to community, South Philly, you know, Point Breeze, Northern Liberties, it would be a great opportunity to have neighbors to come out and do this over holiday in a safe way. Amazing. I am hopeful for good weather on Halloween, (laughs) ladies, so that, you know, people's chalk art can at least uh, be out there and last for a couple of days. So tell us one more time where people can kind of get these chalk packets and get started. There are others that are helping us. We want to also thank, you know, partners that jump on board like Liberty Fairmount Church, Redemption Church, people in the neighborhood. Aetna um, has also is a partner. And so they're sending us some chalk and some bags. And so it is first come first serve, but we do have enough. If you need to pick up chalk or crayons or you want to pick up some candy and we have some other information and resources about Halloween safety and other just general state resources for families, you can pick that up on Friday, October 30th from 3 to 5 p.m. right in front of my office at 2835 West Girard Avenue. We look forward to seeing you there. And then on Saturday, join your neighbors safely from your porch, safely, safely from your soup and your steps and chalk out your Halloween creations and art right then and there. Um, We want to encourage everyone to have a safe Halloween and in general, continue to practice safe social distancing. Wonderful. So thank you to Reverend uh, Shonda Williams and to Pennsylvania State Representative Donna Bullock and everybody, chalk it up. That's it for Flashpoint. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. This episode was produced by Ariane Filter and me, your host, Cherry Gregg. Since we always wrap it up with a quote, here's one from journalist Roger Cohen. Conspiracy theory is the ultimate refuge of the powerless. If you cannot change your own life, it must be that of some greater force controlling the world. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Until next week, thanks for listening.